Good morning. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Jesse Robinson. I'm a pastor here. And if you're new here, if you've moved here, I especially want to welcome you. We are so glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, it's, it's been a while since I've been up here. Um, back in March and April, I preached a series on the wilderness. And last night, I just flew in from a visit to the Texas Panhandle. And I never realized just how prepared I was to speak about the wilderness. <laughs> Virginia could be the Garden of Eden. Like it really, it's so green, it's so lush, um, and I'm so glad to be here with you. Today is a new series. We're going to do a psalm series just through July. And why? Why are we going to do a psalm series? Well, three reasons. First of all, the Psalms are the ABCs of the Christian life. They're a group of 150 songs or poems that run the spectrum of life with God. Like, have you been lonely? There's a psalm for that. Have you been angry with God? There's a psalm for that. Have you been overjoyed? There's a psalm for that. It's the building blocks of our life with God. And that leads us to the second reason we're going to do a psalms. Because our church needs to grow in our spiritual EQ. Our spiritual EQ. Now, you might have heard of EQ as emotional intelligence. Well, there is an emotional intelligence about the spiritual life, or what I would like to call our spiritual emotional intelligence. And Presbyterians, I'm not speaking for all of you, but Presbyterians in general have very low spiritual EQ. We like doctrine, but we do not like feelings. When I ask you, how are you feeling? How is your relationship with God? Sometimes I get weird looks from you. But brothers and sisters, when God came to earth in Jesus as a human, he redeemed the emotional life. Emotions are critical to the Christian life. Listen to the way that the great 18th century theologian Jonathan Edwards put it. He says, religion consists so much in affection or emotion as that without holy affection, there is no true religion. Edwards goes on to essentially say that knowing the right doctrine or even having the right habits is meaningless and useless without the proper feelings to accompany it. It's only the heart that has been set on fire by love of God that makes good doctrine or good works useful. And you see, the Psalms are a great primer for developing our spiritual, emotional intelligence. Finally, third reason, the Psalms reveal the heart of Jesus and his gospel. Did you know, in the New Testament, what is the most quoted book in the Old Testament? It's the Psalms. Because any time that the apostles are trying to describe who Jesus is, they can't help but go to the Psalms. They see Jesus everywhere in the Psalms. And they presume everywhere that it is speaking about Jesus and even that it is Jesus' voice in the Psalms. And so if we want to know the heart of Jesus, we have to know the Psalms. We're going to see these things. We're going to see that the Psalms uniquely reveal the heart of Jesus and his gospel. 
So each week, we're going to take a different psalm and hear Jesus' good news for us. And we're also going to see, look in the New Testament to see how that psalm is used by the apostles. So let's get to our scripture reading today. We're going to begin with Luke chapter 24. You can look on in your bulletin. This is right after Jesus has been resurrected and he is speaking to his apostles. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name in all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Did you hear how Jesus said that everything in the Psalms written about me? Now let's look at Acts 2.29. This is where Peter is going to refer to our psalm today. He's just quoted Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And finally, let's go to Psalm 16, our passage today. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As to the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Today we're going to look at the pursuit, the portion, and the promise of preservation. I'll give that to you again, you note takers. Pursuit, portion, and the promise of preservation. So let's take that first one, the pursuit of preservation. You see, Psalm 16 is all about preservation. It opens with this full-throated cry, preserve me. And then in the latter verses, we'll realize that David is concerned primarily about the prospect of death. That's why he's crying out, preserve me. See, to preserve is to keep safe. 
from destruction or injury to, to keep alive. The NIV says, keep me safe. Perhaps, perhaps you haven't thought recently about your need for preservation. But it's a universal need. Every newborn is completely dependent on others for her preservation. When you hear a baby crying, it's crying, preserve me, isn't it? Feed me. Do something with me. Consider how much of our economy is committed to preserving us, to keeping us safe, to keeping us alive. In 2020, the U.S. spent 19% of the GDP on health consumption. 19%. That's substantial. In 1970, it was 6%. We are investing more and more in our preservation or food. Do you remember when eating at fast food restaurants was cool? I was a child in the 90s, and anytime I saw anyone with like McDonald's or Wendy's, and like Subway was the healthy option, right? And now it's like, that's not cool. Um, like we are really into eating healthy, aren't we? Maybe not Texas, but Virginia. Charlotte, we were very in eating healthy. And over the last 20 years, gym memberships have doubled from 30 million Americans that had a gym membership to 60. That's 20% of every American has a gym membership. You see, how, that's, that's just like run-of-the-mill life preservation. And then there's the intense stuff. Silicon Valley is obsessed with finding the proverbial fountain of youth. Like, name a tech billionaire, and they are likely funding longevity research. That is, how to live longer and healthier, or anti-age intervention. Dave Asprey, founder and CEO of Bulletproof, you might know Bulletproof Coffee, he has said that he expects to live until 180 years old. And he takes a hundred daily supplements. Now, maybe you're not into health preservation. But every one of us are invested in some kind of preserving. So preserving some aspect of our life. So what is it for you? What are you most interested in preserving? Is it financial preservation? Perhaps it's your mental health. You feel your grip on reality is on a razor-sharp edge. Remember the pandemic? <laughs> Perhaps it's your marriage. One of the sad things about going back to my hometown is just seeing how many marriages have ended in divorce. Perhaps it's moral preservation. Like all of us are just one step away from moral destruction. One more drink we should say no to. One outburst of anger. One craving of lust. Like, we need preservation. So where do you pursue preservation? Now David gives us two pursuits, two sources we can draw preservation from. And verses 1 through 3 outlines the first pursuit, which is the Lord his God. Verse 1, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Refuge. That's just another word for preservation. A refuge is that which preserves you. And David is looking to God for that. 
preservation. That means when he is afraid, when he is facing difficult circumstances, he goes to the Lord. He cries out and looks to God for refuge, for comfort, for peace. He continues in verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You see, he has made the Lord his highest good. There is no good in his life apart or before the Lord. In fact, this language here in verse 2, it draws upon the first of the Ten Commandments. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, what David is saying is, you are the ultimate good. You're before everything else in my life. You are my refuge, my preservation. And now this contrasts with verse 4. Look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Those who run after other gods, they do not find preservation or refuge. They only find sorrow upon sorrow. Multiplication of disappointment and desperation. Now this might seem strange to you. Like how does our desire for preservation have anything to do with religion? Have anything to do with God's? Well, you see, biblically, it makes, every, it makes all the sense. God is the Lord and sovereign of all things. He is all-powerful and all-good who created all things and created you. And you were meant to know Him. He is the fuel that your soul is meant to run on. And so when you encounter anything in your life that is hard or dangerous, he is the Lord who made you and created you, and he alone is the one who has the power to preserve you. And nothing else, nothing else can do that. Where do you run to when you feel threatened, when you feel tired? There are so many little pleasures, aren't there? Like Netflix. Candy Crush, Facebook. We go to these things for refuge, but do they deliver? Or is it sorrow after sorrow? You see, the Lord says, if you will come to me, I will preserve you because I am the Lord your God, the God of all things. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't pursue other means of preservation. Don't hear me say that we're not supposed to eat healthy foods and exercise to save and invest money. But friends, your hope is not ultimately in those things. Those things will fail you. It's in the Lord. And a good test of this, to see how you're doing, is your anxiety level. Like when you're anxious or worried about these things, it's usually an indication that your hope is not foremost in the Lord. You have absorbed a bloated sense of your own importance and your own preservation. And friends, like, how fragile we are, right? I remember some years ago, there was a beloved pastor in my hometown. He was young, like late 30s or early 40s. He was the model of good health. And while he was exercising, his heart just gave out and he died. Just like that. You see, none of us know for sure, even whether we're going to make it to the end of this week, do we? 
if there is no God to preserve us, then we should be anxious, right? It's only up to us. But if there is a God who is true goodness and beauty and sovereign over life and death, then it only makes sense to pursue our preservation in Him. So what does that look like to look to the Lord for preservation? That leads us to our second point, the portion. The portion. David shifts from this prayer for preservation to surveying his portion. In other words, David looks around his life and he begins to practice this reflective thankfulness. Look at verse 6. He says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. This language invokes God's allocation of the promised land. You see, as Moses led the Hebrews out of Egyptian slavery and into the promised land of milk and honey, the Lord divided up the land so that each tribe and even family was assigned a lot, an inheritance. And so David is looking at his particular inheritance. And he's saying, isn't that beautiful? Look what God gave me. Look at the lines and boundaries of my lot. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it big and generous? Friends, have you looked at your portion? Have you looked at what God has given you? Don't you see that your life, your body, your family, your job, your house, your abode, your possessions, like there are problems with all that, but don't you see that God has been so good to you? Your portion is rich. But there's something more radical about this portion. In verse 5, he says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. When Israel entered into the promised land, every tribe received a portion, a lot, except for the Levites. The Levites were the chosen tribe of the chosen people, set apart by the Lord to serve him in the temple. The priests came from the Levites. There were the pastors and the deacons. And in Numbers 18.20, this is what the Lord explains. He says, this is why they don't have an inheritance. Because he says, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. David is saying something just as profound. He's saying, I have all these things and that's great. But you know who really is my portion? God is my portion. He is my chosen portion. Brothers and sisters, anyone can be thankful for their portion. Pop psychology, Hallmark cards, and Hobby Lobby wall hangings all exhort us to, to be grateful, right? But here is the distinct mark of a heart that has set its hope in the preservation of the Lord. It has made the Lord its chosen portion. In other words, the heart looks at all the wonderful things in this life, and there are wonderful things. And it looks at them, and it says, I want God more. I want God more. He is my portion. He makes life worth living. Even if I lose everything, and eventually, friends, every one of us will. Eventually, you will lose everything. Unless the Lord comes back. 
But even if we lose everything, and we will, even then it is okay because I have the Lord, the God who made all things. He is my portion. He is my inheritance. That is the portion of the heart that loves God, that looks to God for preservation. And verses 5 through 8 are the poetry of a lover delighting in his beloved. Do you hear the poetry? Do you hear the language of the heart, the passion, and emotion? The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Does your heart sing that? Can you say that with David? The 4th century African bishop, St. Augustine, lived a hedonistic life, pursuing other gods and multiplying sorrow after sorrow. You can read it as confessions. He pursued sex, the academic life, relationships, and he left all this carnage in the wake. And then God intervened, and he transformed Augustine. The lover had finally found the beloved worth pursuing, and the result was this poetry of passion. Listen to how he describes his conversion. It says, Lo, you are within, but I outside, seeking there for you. And upon the shapely things you have made, I rushed headlong, I, the shapen. You were with me, but I was not with you. They held me back far from you, those things which would have no being, were they not in you. You called, shouted, broke through my deafness, you flared, blazed, banished my blindness. You lavished your fragrance. I gasped, and now I pant for you. I tasted you, and I hunger and thirst. You touched me, and I burned for your peace. Augustine says, so many of the creative things distracted me from the very fact that you, God the Creator, were calling me towards Him, towards you. And you are what my soul was made for. And friends, this is not simply the reserve for St. Augustine. This is what the Lord God offers to each one of us. This heart, this heart that has made the Lord its portion. Listen to Psalm 73. It perfectly describes this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And friends, the, portion, the, the heart that has made its portion the Lord, it is unshakable. How, how are you doing right now? Are you tossed and turned in this world? Are, are you shaken? Are you afraid of bad news? Look at verse 8 again. It says, I've set the Lord always before me. In other words, I'm looking at the Lord. He is foremost on my heart and mind. And look at the consequence of this. It says, I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. When the Lord is at your right hand, you do not need to be afraid of bad news. That is a heart that has set its portion on the Lord. And you know why we can be unshakable? Because God himself is unshakable. 
Amen? He is not worried. He's not afraid. He knows how the end of history works. He's controlling it all. Finally, let's go to our third point, the promise. Now, the psalm has undergone a change in tone. It begins with this desperate cry of, preserve me. But David has now remembered that his portion is the Lord, and he is unshakable now. But there's even more. There's this implicit promise that bolsters David's confidence and gladdens his heart. Look at verse 9 and 10. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to shale or let your Holy One see corruption. Do you hear that promise in that? The Lord's preservation is so faithful, so complete, that it extends even to death. The Hebrew locale of Sheol was the resting place of the dead. It was like the Greek Hades, which is what Peter's sermon referenced. David is certain that God will not leave, leave him to death. Now, it could be that David merely believes that God will be there with him in Sheol, that the divine presence will accompany him even there. But David seems to hint at something more. Like, why does his flesh, his body, dwell secure? And, and, and why does, his, does he not see corruption? Like, corruption is the natural thing that happens to us when we die. You see, there was an implicit promise here that God's preservation is so complete that even death itself would not undo it. But there's a problem. Because David died. He's the author of this psalm. He died. His flesh saw corruption. And that was Peter's point in our reading in Acts 2. Peter says, Psalm 16 cannot have been about David. The Jews could go to the site of David's grave. So Psalm 16 had to be about someone else. Someone whose flesh did not see corruption. And that was Peter's point. You see, Psalm 16 was about Jesus Christ, David's greater son. How many of you have seen The Sixth Sense? Uh, I feel like a 20-year-old movie is fine to, to spoil it. Um, if you've ever watched The Sixth Sense, there's something odd about it. And you don't figure it out until the very end. And you can really only watch The Sixth Sense twice. You watch it the first time, and you have no clue what's happening. You watch it the second time, and you're like, oh, I get it now. You see all these things that you didn't see before because you didn't know the end. And that's what Peter and the apostles are doing with the Old Testament. They see the end now. And the end is Jesus' death and resurrection, and they look back. And they say, oh, don't you see it right there? Don't you see the red? That was a sixth sense reference. <laughs> Peter had seen the end. You see, Jesus was in the lineage of David. He was the rightful heir to the throne. And Jesus' flesh did dwell secure. That's why he was only in the grave for how long? Three days before his flesh could be corrupt. 
He was crucified, yes, but before the body could decay or corrupt, the Lord raised him from the dead. So Psalm 16 was a promise of resurrection, of Jesus' resurrection. God fulfills his promise to David through Jesus. You see, Psalm 16 is all about Jesus. And in verses 8 through 11, that's what Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2. We didn't read that. We read right after that. But if verses 8 through 11 are all about Jesus, then the whole psalm is about Jesus. You see, these are the words of Christ, which makes so much more sense. Because if you know anything about the life of David, you know the Lord was not always his chosen portion. You know that he didn't always listen to his blessed counselor in verse 7. Against the Lord's counsel, David lusted, committed adultery, and even murdered. But Jesus is the perfect keeper of Psalm 16. He trusted the Lord completely for his preservation. Even on the cross, he prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Which is just another way of saying, preserve me, O Lord, for in you I take refuge. He is the only one who can perfectly declare, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. He is the only one who has the most beautiful of inheritances, the whole world. And look at verse 11. When we see that this is actually about Jesus, how much more beautiful this is when we see Jesus here. It says, you make known to me the path of life. Who is the path of life? Who said, I am the way and the truth and the life? Jesus. He says, in your presence there is fullness of joy. In fact, on the night before he was crucified, Jesus says, I came, I spoke these words that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Over and over in the New Testament, the apostles say, you know where Jesus is right now? He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Do you see how this is all about Jesus? Some of you might think that the Bible is first and foremost about rules, about what you need to do or don't do. But the Bible is first and foremost about the incredible work of Jesus Christ and his glorious salvation that he offers us by grace. Brothers and sisters, we will never speak the words of Psalm 16 with full integrity on this side of eternity. The verse that most describes us is verse 4. Running after the gods. We do not deserve the preservation of our Lord. We deserve corruption and decay because we choose corruption and decay daily. We choose lust and pride and greed and self-righteousness. We choose power over humility. And rather than trusting in the Lord's perfect preservation, we have a tight-fisted grasp on those things we hold dear. But the good news is that Psalm 16 is not about us. It's about Jesus Christ and his gospel. And in Jesus, the Lord offers us the blessing and benefit of his preservation. You see, anyone who comes to Jesus by faith, anyone who comes to Jesus and says, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you, they have 
the blessing of preservation. Psalm 16 then becomes alive for them. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That God has offered the world his son. And if you'll make Jesus your portion, everything that belongs to him will be yours. His preservation is yours. That's what the apostles preached, that when you believe in Christ, you are united to him. And there is a great exchange. All your sins and immoralities, your idolatries and foibles are given to Christ who's crucified them on the cross. And everything that Jesus has, his sure preservation, his righteousness, his glory is given to you because he loves you. Even your in his resurrection he gives to you. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Friends, 180 years, it's nothing. Jesus offers us eternity, the surest and fullest preservation. And your future is verse 11 the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do confess that we run after so many other things besides you. We pursue so many other things. But Lord, we thank you that Jesus Christ is the perfect, the perfect proclaimer of these words. And so Lord, we take refuge in you even now. Lord, meet us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.